Thank you for listening to this message from Waynesboro Free Methodist Church. Our mission is to multiply faithful followers of Jesus Christ. We hope this message helps you along your journey. Well, good morning, church family. How are you? Oh, three of you are great. How are the rest of you? I want to... uh, I want to turn your attention to something real quick. In your bulletin, there's this handout. It's got the word joy on it, so you have every reason to turn your eyes to it. It's just an event that's coming up this Thursday. It's the Gape Fellowship. Uh, note that there's a time change on it, so make sure you're paying attention to that. That's, that was an oversight on our part. We apologize for not mentioning that earlier. Go ahead and get your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew 26 is where we're going to be today. And goodness, guys, i got to tell you, I've missed you last week. Uh, screens are just getting really old uh, in, in, in trying to interact with you guys. So, so I'm, I'm thankful for it, but it doesn't work. <laughs> it's not the design of the church or design of God for the church. And, 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 and let me just uh, kind of reintroduce where we're at because we took a break last week. And, and, and two weeks ago, we started a series called Visible Gospel. Can you say Visible Gospel? Good, we're getting there. And, and this series is a quick two-part series on the sacraments that we as Protestants hold as a practice of the church. It's sacrament of baptism and the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, which by the way, if you have not yet gotten the Lord's Supper, the elements are outside. So we're going to be taking it at some point today, so make sure you go get that. But to make sure we're all on the same page as to what we mean by sacraments, here's the definition that we're using. Sacraments are visible symbolic expressions of invisible spiritual realities. Can you read that with me again? Visible, symbolic expressions of invisible spiritual realities. Boy, I need to be careful with this. I about knocked that over. Goodness. So in doing some study on this topic and for this series, I came across a quote by a Swiss reformer named Henrik Bullinger. And he said, it this way. The truest and most proper cause why sacraments are instituted under visible signs seems partly to be God's goodness and partly also man's weakness. <laughs> for, every, uh, for very hardly do we reach unto the knowledge of heavenly things if, without visible form, as they are in their own nature, pure and excellent, they are laid before our eyes. But they are better and more easily understood if they are represented unto us under the figure of earthly things, that is to say, under signs familiarly known to us. That's a tough word, isn't it? Familiarly. Hey, I nailed it that time. So what he's arguing is that, that part of God's goodness is to us is, in giving these sacraments is to remind us in visible ways, in easy-to-see uh, to ways, the goodness of the gospel over and over again. These Sacraments are designed to do that, to bless us, to preach to us again and again the gospel, and we see them visibly on display. So last week, we talked about the sacrament of baptism, we talked about how uh, it's symbolic of the believer's uh, cleansing from sin, it's symbolic of the believer's safe passage through judgment, and it's symbolic of the believer's union with Jesus' death and resurrection. Now, This week, we're going to be talking about the Lord's Supper. Can you say the Lord's Supper? The Lord's Supper is a meal, right? And it's a very significant meal in the life of the church. But guys, it's it's not out of the ordinary for meals to be significant in places and things, right? Like, 
Meals are huge in our culture, aren't they? Like they play a huge part. Think about our holidays. Just think about them real quick. There's meals that we gather around for each holiday, and usually there's a specific meal associated with the holiday. So what's for Christmas? Christmas ham, right? Christmas ham and taters and gravy, usually. Uh, What about Thanksgiving? What do you have for Thanksgiving? Gobble, gobble with some what? Stuffing, right? It happens every time. And then you also have to have grandma's sweet potato casserole. It's got like an almond sweetened crust on the top, baked to perfection. I'm, I'm hungry. And then what do we do on the 4th of July? Hot dogs and hamburgers under that American flag waving above us as we sing our song, right? We've got all sorts of meals that symbolically commemorate different things throughout the year for us. And not only are they important in our culture or in our calendar, but they're also important in our families. Meals play a huge part in our families. Guys, I grew up in a home where dinner was a very important meal where we gathered together around the table. Hardly ever did we miss a meal together. There was only one meal that we didn't have together, and that was Sunday night. You know why? Because Sunday lunch we had together, right? And my mom only cooked one big meal a day. That's all we got from her. <laughs> that was her role. So, but we'd, we'd get together around the table. We'd have the meal together, and boy, we would talk about each other's days. We'd laugh. We'd share jokes. We'd offend one another, and somebody would get mad. We'd sneak cookies, all sorts of stuff all over a meal. Guys, that's a practice that my wife and I have carried into our home as well. If you were to join us any night of the week for for a meal at dinner time, you'd find us all around the table and you'd find us asking questions of one another. We, every night that we get together, share our high, our low, and our far out together. Every kid gets asked that question. Every adult gets asked that question. And basically, what's your high means what was the best part of your day? What's your low means what was the worst part of your day? Uh, It could be associated with sadness or anger. Uh, And then we ask, what was your far out part of the day? Meaning, Meaning like the weirdest part of your day. That was something that the kids wanted to add. And usually when we get to that part, when it's like our turn, the kids start doing really weird things to try to win the title. Well, that's the weirdest thing. Yeah, you dumped pepper on your sandwich. That's not the best thing for you to do. That was weird. So we do that because we hold as valuable that meal. We hold as valuable our family. And so we gather around a meal. Needless to say though, Meals are a huge part of God's story too. They're huge. Think about it. What were Adam and Eve invited into in the garden by God? The right kind of meal. Eat of the tree of life. Eat of the garden. Right? They were invited to a meal. What did Satan invite them to? The wrong kind of meal. A meal that actually when they ate threw mankind and all of creation into depravity. We see some of the most Uh, important events in Israel's history commemorated by what? Meals, right? Festivals, meals gathered around the table. Not only that, but we see Jesus come on the scene. At Jesus' arrival, he shares meals with sinners, with tax collectors, with Pharisees and lepers, with both men and women. You know, one, one theologian made the observation that there's only three words that end the phrase, or three phrases that end the words, the Son of Man came. Only three ways that ends. First, 
in Luke 9, the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Amen? Amen. Secondly, in Mark 10, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Amen? And the third one, Matthew 11, the Son of Man came eating and drinking. Thank the Lord! All God's people said, amen. amen. Um, obviously, the rescue part's the most important part, but it's cool to note that the Son of Man came to eat and drink, to share a meal with us. And in sharing a meal with sinners and outcasts like me and you, he ushers in the kingdom of God because he welcomes everyone to his table who would come. Amen. So nearing the climax of Jesus' earthly ministry here, he spent the night before his crucifixion doing what? Sharing a meal. He shares a last meal with his disciples. And in that meal, he institutes a new supper for us, a new meal for us, which we call the Lord's Supper, a.k.a. the Lord's Table, a.k.a. Eucharist, a.k.a. Communion. Goodness, we've got all sorts of names for it. We're going to just go with the Lord's Supper. But uh, to clarify, when people talk about it as Eucharist, obviously that's more Catholic-leaning, Eucharist comes from the Greek word that means to give thanks. And it's what Jesus does whenever he gives thanks to, to, to commemorate this meal. And so some people call it the Eucharist. Okay, that's fine. Uh, in certain Protestant circles, it's called communion, right? And communion comes from a passage in 1 Corinthians 10, which we'll talk about in a little bit, but it means fellowship. It means that we're partaking, we're participating with Christ and the body. And I'll explain more in a little bit what that means, but we're just gonna go ahead and refer to this sacrament as the Lord's Supper that he ordained as the last supper that he was gonna take with us until he returns. And it's a supper that he ordains for us to take over and over and over again in remembrance of him. So let me, let me get to the point of today. Let me, let me just go ahead and throw this out there. What the aim is for this morning for us is simply to ask the question, what invisible spiritual reality or realities does the Lord's Supper visibly, symbolically express? Y'all tracking with me there? Does this make sense? Because I've got the answers for you on the front end of this. So if you like to take notes, go ahead and outline your notes in this way. You can see the answer uh, is as follows. There's four realities, four spiritual, very real truths that the Lord's Supper is pointing us to in the heart of the gospel. And it's one, Christ as the Passover lamb. Notice how the C's are underlined. There's more C letters for you, Dave. More C's, right? Christ, covenant, communion, and coming. So we have Christ as the Passover lamb, we have the new covenant, we have communion with the body of Christ, and then we have the coming supper of the lamb. And we are going to explore all four of those realities this morning, and we are going to book it fast, okay? So let's get this underway. Guys, we're going to see this sacrament as recorded in Matthew 26. So uh, start in verse 17, is where we want to be. Verse 17 in chapter 26. I'm going to read a section, we're going to skip a section, and we're going to go to another section. So, verse 17. On the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat the what? Passover. Go into the city to a certain man, Jesus said, and tell him, The teacher says, My time is near. I am celebrating the Passover at your place with my disciples. Verse 19. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and prepared the Passover. 
When evening came, he was reclining at the table with the twelve. At this point, we're going to skip this part, but it's where Jesus prophesies of his betrayal. We're going to jump over to verse 26. As they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it, gave it to the disciples and said, take it and eat. This is my body. Then he took a cup and after giving thanks, he gave it to them and said, drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. But I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. After singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. So let's, for, let's explore those four realities. The first one was what? Christ as the Passover lamb. Christ as the Passover lamb. You can see that Jesus instituted this meal in the context of the Passover, uh, uh, the Passover meal that you see in verses 17 through 20. In fact, in Luke's account, uh, Jesus himself says to his disciples at the table, I have fervently desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. So in other words, this meal is, is meant to be in the context of the Passover. But what on earth is that? What is the Passover? We've got to ask that question. Guys, it was an annual feast that the Jews celebrated year after year, commanded by God to commemorate something that happened centuries beforehand. In fact, a millennia beforehand. So in order for all of us to get onto the same page or jump into the same boat, I'm going to tell that story very briefly and, and it'll, it'll make this incredible image. So about 1,500 years before this, Israel was in slavery to Egypt. You can see that recorded in the book of Exodus. And, and God hears their cries, their moaning, and their pain. And he raises up Moses and sends Moses to hit his boy Pharaoh up and be like, yo, dude, let my people go. We know what happens, though. What does Pharaoh do? What does he say? Uh-uh. He says, no way. That ain't happening. So what happens at that point is a series of plagues, right? A series of plagues to try to convince Pharaoh to let God's people go. What happened? Well, we saw like the Nile turn to blood. That's trippy. We see gnats and flies. We see frogs come in, just cover the land. We see boils on people's skin. We see darkness so thick you can't even see, right? It's insane. And each of these times, Pharaoh says, nah, uh -huh, nah, I don't know. Not going to happen. Guys, I got to say, that's some kind of stubborn because I think once we got to the flies, I would have said, no, you can go ahead and go. Just go ahead. These flies, I'm done. Flies are the worst plague ever, except when you get to the final one. I mean, there was like fire falling from heaven. That one's pretty bad. Let's just be real. But then we get to the final one. Nine times Pharaoh has said no to the Lord. And God commands Moses and Moses goes to Pharaoh and says, this one's going to be it. This one... God is going to kill the firstborn of every person from the powerful Pharaoh to the shackled prisoner. No matter who it is, the firstborn son will be slain tonight if you don't let the people go. Well, it turns out that, that God gave a way for Israel to escape this coming plague. And this is how it went. God told Moses to tell Israel that that they could be saved if they obeyed these commands, these instructions. They were told to take what was called, newly called, the Passover lamb. This was an unblemished, spotless, perfect lamb. 
And, and they were to slay it. They were to collect its blood. They were to take a hyssop plant, dip it into the blood, and go to their house and paint it on the doorpost and on the lintel of their home. And what that meant was that when God saw the blood on the door, he would pass over that home. See what I mean? Get it? He would pass over that home and nobody inside that house would be harmed or destroyed or struck down. That house would be protected by the blood. But that wasn't all of it. While that was happening, Israel was commanded to be inside eating the lamb that they had slain, consuming it with bitter herbs, consuming it with haste. And they were also commanded to eat bread and drink. And that's exactly what happened that night. The Lord comes into the land, strikes down the firstborn, but passes over every house of Israel that had been covered by the blood. And that's exactly what set Israel free from slavery to Egypt, and it's what protected them from death, the blood. And every year they would observe this meal again and again, They'd take that lamb without blemish. They'd paint its blood on the doorpost and the lintel. They'd eat of its flesh with bread and with wine. And they'd share the story year after year of how God, with great signs and wonders, set them free from the tyranny of slavery to Egypt and from death. All because of the Passover lamb. Now fast forward to here, to Jesus. And he's instituting this meal and he's sharing Passover with them but, but there's one key element missing. He's offering what? He's offering the bread and he's offering the drink but, but where's the Passover lamb? Had it been slain? No, the sacrifice of a pure, unblemished Passover lamb was coming because Jesus is saying in this meal, I am the Passover lamb. The body broken, the blood poured out, the flesh consumed. Jesus in this new meal is saying that he is the Christ, the Messiah promised to come to be the sacrifice for sins once for all, the protection from death, the setting free from slavery to sin, the one who's going to rescue his people once and for all. As Jesus is saying, he is the new, he is the final, he is the ultimate Passover lamb who will deliver his people from sin and death. So you see the three components of that meal, Jesus, the bread, and the wine. So this is why you and I don't celebrate the Passover meal anymore. We celebrate the Lord's Supper because the Passover lamb has already been sacrificed once for all. Friends, that's just the first one, and boy, it's good. We gotta get to number two. The number two, the second reality that the Lord's Supper points us to is the new covenant. Can you say the new covenant? The new covenant. Look at verse 27. Verse 27, he says, then he took a cup, and after drinking it, he gave it to them and said, drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant. Luke adds new covenant there which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. What does that mean? What, is, what do we mean by a new covenant? 
Well, for those of you who were in our Sunday school class this morning, you would know exactly what it is. So you could be up here speaking about this yourselves. But I'm going to go ahead and take care of that for you. A covenant is an agreement between two or more parties stipulating the conditions of their relationships. It's an agreement. It's, hey, here's what we're going to agree to. Here's how I'm going to obligate myself to you. And guys, it turns out that this is how God expresses his love and his faithfulness to us through different covenants throughout all of history, throughout all of scripture, to certain people in certain places. So we had a covenant that was made in the Garden of Eden. We had a covenant uh, that was made to Noah for all of creation. We had a covenant made to Abraham. We had a covenant uh, made to Moses or ultimately to the people of Israel. And that's the covenant that's often called the old covenant. Let me talk about that for a second. In that covenant, God promised that Israel would have access to him as long as there was atonement for sin. Access requiring atonement. So so we have this picture of the tabernacle. We have sacrifices that are made where they would be able to go access the presence of God based on a sacrifice of an animal according to certain particular sins. A certain sin would have a certain required sacrifice. So basically the animal would be slain, its blood would be sprinkled out on the altar to atone for sin. But the problem was, this old covenant required perpetual sacrifice over and over again because our sins are many. I can't imagine how many animals I'd have to sacrifice just because of sin in me this morning. So uh, with that, this is a huge deal. Jesus is saying here that he's holding out a cup that's symbolically offering a new covenant, a new stipulation, a new arrangement for how God was going to relate to man and man to relate to God. It was going to be a sacrifice of sins that would forgive them once and for all. No more sacrifice needed declaring full, free, forever, forgiveness for all sin, for all brokenness, for those who have faith in him, who drink of the cup of Jesus. Guys, Jesus is offering new terms for the arrangement between God and man in this meal, a new covenant. Look at at the way God describes what this new covenant really means in in Jeremiah. This is uh, centuries beforehand, Jeremiah is prophesying, look, the days are coming. This is the Lord's declaration. When I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, this one will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors on the day I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. Instead, this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days. The Lord's declaration. I will put my teaching within them, not just on tablets, on the tablets of their hearts, and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will one teach his neighbor or his brother saying, hey, know the Lord. No, for they will all know me from the least to the greatest of them. This is the Lord's declaration. For I will forgive their iniquity and never again remember their sins. This is God saying, here's the new covenant that I'm going to make with you in just a few centuries. Just hold on, Jesus is gonna make it happen. Look at how Describes it in Ezekiel 36. I will also sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will place my spirit within you and cause you to follow, you, uh, cause you to follow my statutes and carefully observe my ordinances. My goodness. Under this new arrangement, 
God would give direct access to his presence by the indwelling spirit in you and in me. After he's already made us new, he makes us new, he regenerates us, we are born again, given a new heart and a new nature. This is the terms of the new agreement. So Jesus holding out this cup is offering a new covenant that's going to be secured only by his blood that's being poured out as the ultimate final sacrifice for sin. That's exactly what happens. We see Jesus go to the cross. We see people cry out, may his blood be on us and on our children for generations. Their cry, intending to own the guilt of murdering him, ends up being our creed. May his blood be on us and our children for generations so that we would be clean. Guys, this is gospelicious stuff. Let's move into number three, third reality that this is pointing to, communion with Christ's body. Can you say that with me? Communion with Christ's body. Guys, another word for communion is fellowship or to share. Uh, it comes from the Greek word koinonia. So some churches have those like those koinonia groups, so they shorten K groups, right? Like K cups. Oh, that was an old thing. But anyways, uh, K groups, uh, koinonia, have in common, to share in common. God calls to in Christ, we fellowship with his son. We, have, we participate with his son. It's, it's what the early church devoted themselves to in Acts chapter 2. He says that we devote themselves to the fellowship, to the having in common. And here, Jesus invites us to share with him a meal at his table with him. There's a fellowship, there's a, there's a sharing, a participation that happens at this table. It's a fellowship that Christ himself is inviting us into with him as our host. Paul describes it in 1 Corinthians 10. He says, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a sharing in the blood of Christ? The word sharing is fellowship or participation, sharing. The bread that we break, is it not a sharing in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one, what? Body, since all of us share the one bread. Hmm. So we have community with the blood of Christ, we, and we fellowship with one another as members of this new covenant that's found in his blood. And then we also have a community, a participation, a sharing in the body of Christ, in the bread, meaning we, we're, we're united with Christ. And when I'm united with Christ and you're united with Christ, then you and I are united together. We belong together as the church. In other words, us observing and taking the Lord's Supper together is the chiefest expression of us being one body. Of us belonging to the body of Christ and you and me being one together as members of a new covenant. So we have communion with the body of Christ. But wait, there's more with number four. The coming uh, supper of the Lamb. The coming supper of the Lamb. Let's say that together. One, two, three. Coming supper of the Lamb. Guys, look at verse 29. But I tell you, 
I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Oh boy. As Jesus here institutes for himself a kind of fast. He's going to fast from the drink of this supper until we drink it new with him in the coming of his Father's kingdom. Guys, this isn't just an empty promise from a cheap date for a second outing, right? Goodness, this is, this is a meal that's designed to remind us of a promised reality that's coming. As Paul describes it uh, in, 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 in his recounting of the Lord's Supper, he says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until what? He comes. As you and I both know, Jesus lived and Then he died by crucifixion as an atoning sacrifice for sin as the Passover lamb. He was buried. He rose from the dead in triumph over Satan's sin and death. And then he, after some time, ascended to his father in heaven and is now seated at the right hand of his father. His bride, which is you and I, the capital C church, have been washed. We've been cleansed. And and, and this meal given to us to remind us that there's a coming meal waiting for us in heaven one day. Some pretty uh, persuasive theologians argue that that meal is going to be Chick-fil-A. I can make a very strong biblical argument that it's going to be Bojangles. Either way, there's a coming meal where we are going to share a table with Jesus. But let me... Let me put this a little bit more seriously than Chick-fil-A and Bojangles. One day, Jesus will come again. He'll rip open the sky, riding on a white horse with fire in his eyes. The words, King of kings and Lord of lords, tattooed on his thigh. With the sword of his word, he judges and makes war. The armies of heaven following him in white linen, pure. He'll conquer every enemy and call to himself his bride. She'll rise up with him and together they'll turn their eyes to see the city of God descending through the clouds with the cry of the angels like thunder billowing loud hallelujah because our Lord God Almighty reigns let us be glad rejoice and forever give him praise for the marriage of the bride and of the lamb has come sit at the table feast and celebrate all he's done Guys, we'll gather around the table from every tribe and nation we'll raise our cups to him and together we will praise him and drink drink with our king with saints and angels from the new vine and feast on the bread of heaven for the very first time. You see, Jesus is waiting to feast with us when earth's invaded by heaven and this meal preaches to us the unrelenting desire over and over again. He's here with us now in part sharing with us this feast, but soon we'll dine with our host, our king in permanent Perfect peace. And when you, when you and I partake of this meal here and now, the bread 
and the drink of the vine, we're reminding ourselves again and again and again that we'll share that meal with him at the marriage supper of the Lamb. As these are the four realities, not an exhaustive list, but the main list of what the Lord's Supper perpetually reminds us of, continually preaches to us again and again, the good news, the gospel, that Christ himself is the Passover lamb, that we now relate to God under a new covenant, that we have a communion with the body of Christ himself and his people, and that there's a coming supper that we're gonna dine with our king. This is what this is pointing us to and preaching to us again and again, that gospel, so good. And you know, you know what this does to a local church when you and I partake of the elements of the Lord's Supper with these things on our minds and stirring in our hearts? You know what this does to the local church? It makes her incredibly dangerous to the kingdom of darkness. It makes us a dangerous people for the realm of darkness. Think about it. Just, just think. When, when a local church really, truly reckons what's true about these things, when we really believe in our hearts what this Lord's Supper is preaching to us, the truth that because of Christ, the Passover lamb, you and I are free from slavery to sin and we're protected from death. It has no more sting. When you and I actually believe that because we're under a new covenant, we're creatures of grace, that, that we're, we're creatures with God's very presence dwelling in us, when you and I actually reckon what's true, that, that we now have communion with Christ's body, which means now you and I are brothers and sisters along on the same journey until that day when we finally know in the end Jesus conquers, Satan's defeated, sin and death are no more, and we're going to feast with our king in the new heaven and earth. What happens when you and I, what happens when you and I actually believe that to be true? goodness, what can stand against us? If God is so clearly for us, then who can stand against? Guys, I love how uh, John Chrysostom, he's a really old dead guy who, who said some stuff. He's, he said it this way. He is given to those who desire him not only to see him, but to even touch him and eat him, to fix their teeth in his flesh and to embrace him and to satisfy all their love. Let us then return from that table like lions breathing fire, having become terrible to the devil, thinking on our head, meaning Christ, and on the love that he has shown for us. So let's partake together of, of this meal and let's meditate on these truths until our heart's affections are stirred and there's fire coming up in our breath. We hope this message helps you multiply faithful followers of Jesus Christ. For more information about our church, please visit waynesboroughfm.com.